Hello, I'm Andrew Bracey and welcome to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast and a very special and different episode this time around. As regular listeners will be aware, this series features interviews with doctors from a range of really interesting backgrounds, examining their personal and professional journeys and hearing their fascinating stories, their passions, their insights and advice. Um, that's all very much here in this podcast today, except we have a guest interview host, Dr. Jeff Toogood, who as well as being a previous guest on this podcast back in episode six of season one for anyone who might like to go back and hear a little bit more about his personal story. Um, he's of course the driving force behind Crazy Socks for Docs Day which is happening very very soon um, Friday or June in fact so I'm sure most listeners would be very familiar with Crazy Socks for Docs Foundation its work and I know many of you have been involved had a lot of fun with your socks in years past as part of the event all in the spirit of Jeff's goal his vision breaking down the stigma around mental health issues in doctors and health professionals. Jeff's guest on this podcast is Professor Michael Myers, who's Professor of Clinical Psychiatry and Behavioural Sciences at the Sunny Downstate Health Sciences University in Brooklyn, New York. I'll leave it to Jeff, in his own words, to give a full intro and, and context um, about Michael and his work. But suffice to say, this is a really great chat between two physicians who have an incredible wealth of experience um, and a lot of wisdom um, about all kinds of issues uh, relating to doctors' mental health from both sides um, of the equation. Before we get to that, I need to quickly flag a couple of things. The first being the Crazy Socks for Docs Day virtual event that will be happening on Friday 4 June. It's being hosted by Dr. Sally Coburn, who some might know better as Dr. Feelgood, and we'll also have a panel including another CCIM podcast alumni, Dr. Lawyer, Disability Advocate, Dinesh Palapana. Uh, it will also feature Doctors in Distress Chair, Dame Claire Gerardo, and Beyond Blue National Doctors Mental Health Program Chair, Dr. Makesh Haikawal. You can register for this event online um, by heading over to the CCIM Facebook page and following the Zoom event link to this virtual event. The second thing I need to quickly mention is the preparations for CCIM 2021. The Creative Careers and Medicine Conference are already heading up. Um, obviously last year's event um, ended up being a virtual event because uh, of COVID, of course. But at this stage, all things going well, the 2021 CCIM Conference will have us all back together again. It'll be a live event, um, which would be so wonderful. So mark your diaries. It's happening from the 5th to the 7th of November at the Novotel Sydney in Brighton Beach. I should remind you that the submissions for those wishing to present at the conference are due to close at the end of this month, May 31, they actually close. So if you want to be part of the program, and we'd love to have you, the clock is ticking. So get your submissions in. For more intro, uh, more intro, more information, I should say, on how to get involved. Um, again, you can head to the CCIM Facebook page and follow the links to the event presentation submission forms or email the organisers. Uh, the address to hit up is hello at creativecareersinmedicine.com. So with all of that now plugged, I'll hand over to Dr. Jeff Toogood and his guest, Professor Michael Myers. Hello, this is Dr. Jeff Tugan. I'm the founder of Crazy Socks for Docs, and today, great pleasure to be speaking to Professor Michael Myers uh, from New York City. It's the evening in New York. It's early morning here. Um, 
So I just said to Michael, you missed the singing kookaburras that woke me up as we were setting this up. Just an introduction about Michael's background. Michael currently is the Professor of Clinical Psychiatry at Sunny Downstroke Health Services University in Brooklyn, New York. This is, I will be speaking to Michael about his ninth book, but he's author of previously eight books uh, dealing with medical students and physicians uh, and their marriages. And he's dedicated essentially his private practice and medical life to treating physicians and their families. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, Jeff. Delighted to be here. Now, the book um, is Becoming a Doctor's Doctor, a memoir. Why the book, Michael? Well, I wrote this book because I wanted to get out some key messages about physicians, uh, one of them being that we're human too. And what that means is that we're no different than the rest of humankind. And um, that's, the, that's the big message. I also wanted to talk about, which I've done in the book, that physicians can be diagnosed with sometimes pretty serious illnesses, but with treatment, they can get well. And most of them make 100% improvement. I, I wanted to get that message out because sometimes people get worried that a physician who is going through a rough time might need to be on medical leave for a period of time or something like that is never going to return. Something like that happens occasionally, but it's actually quite rare. Physicians respond nicely to care. The third message I'm trying to get out there with regard to physicians as patients and physicians as human beings is that one of the problems that we have in getting help is stigma. And that is so prevalent in the house of medicine that it really cripples physicians so that when and if they begin to develop some symptoms that are suggestive of, say, an anxiety disorder or PTSD or <clears throat> uh, trouble with their mood like depression or substance use disorder or whatever, they get worried um, that if it doesn't go away, what am I going to do? Because they really are loath to go get help because they're well, there's a number of reasons for this. It's not all stigma, but I mean, most of us prefer to be in the treating role rather than you know being in the patient role. But I mentioned stigma and the problem being is that we have this inner sense of not feeling very good about ourselves uh, compared to our peers and things like that. So that we're reluctant you know, to make that phone call to go see our primary care physician or to go to a psychiatrist or psychologist, but and yet to a fault, when, when physicians actually embrace care and begin to see that it's not as bad as they thought it would be, and in fact, they're actually feeling much better, and sometimes they can really become ambassadors uh, for the importance of self-care and care by a mental health professional. So Jeff, those are some of the key messages that, oh, and also just one other thing I'll add is that you mentioned I was a specialist in physician health. Um, throughout my 35-year career, I had a half-time private practice and a half-time academic work. And when I started out, my, my private practice was more of a general psychiatric practice. But as I began to see increasing numbers of medical students and physicians and their family members, I decided for the last 25 years of my career to restrict my practice to only looking after medical students, physicians, and their family members. So that's how I ended up with so much experience. At the time that I put the memoir together, 
um, looking at my records and everything, there's been over 700 physicians uh, that I've treated you know, through my career. So, Wow, that's a lot. Um, we talk about stigma here around mental health, um, certainly in the, you know, the general population, but I, I think it has a biting and sort of significant influence in doctors uh, in health, you know, and other health professionals, particularly doctors and medical students. Um, sort of, is, can you see a reason why or how we can change it? You do, you do mention in the book, you know, it's an, it's, um, it's doctors admitting they're vulnerable and that they need to get help, and then, and that's a sense of um, yeah. uh, frailty in them. And I like the quote at the start of your book um, from Robert Kitz, Klitzman: "When doctors become patients, through their professional training and socialisation, then doctors frequently had come to see physician holders protective against illness as an immunity defence and." In some ways, we think ourselves as bulletproof and that we can't develop particularly a mental health condition. Um, what do you think we should do? Or what, yeah, what's your... yeah, thank you for that, because that is really one of the big pieces there as well. Uh, as you know, there's a, there's a certain sort of ruggedness that's expected in physicians uh, even, you know, trying to get into medical school and things like that or remaining in medical school or through training and working, um, that we are expected, as you say, to be bulletproof. And yet we, this is the point. We are human. Um, so the culture of medicine is like that as well. So we pride ourselves at one level on our endurance. But, but you know, we all have a breaking point. And this is why the last, I would say, 15 to 20 years, when we read so much about burnout in physicians, that is really um, concerning. Um, and it's, it's not going away, it's lessening, but there's been, as you know, a huge amount of scientific study about burnout. And, and just for those people who are listening, burnout is not in what we call our DSM here in the, in the United States, it's, it's, it's now in ICD, but it's always been considered an occupational um, definition. So, in other words, what we mean by that is that burnout could happen to the strongest and the and the you know the most resilient physician, and so because it's got to do with a system that is just not healthy, it's not working, and so that's why when a physician does develop symptoms of burnout, that is really concerning because we worry then that um, there needs to be some sort of change in the work in the work force, the work system, either near you know, the actual clinic or institution where they work or in the whole system of, of care. And I, it feels to me that, that finally, you know, people are getting this, people are waking up. And I, I mean also, you know, the stakeholders uh, who, who at one level need physicians, you know, in their, uh, you know, in their municipality, in their country or whatever to, you know, to look after ill people or highly trained professionals. So that's why, for instance, the movement that we've been reading so much about the last oh, two or three years, it's been around longer, but it's, that's the moral injury uh, work um, of Dr. Talbot and Dr. Dean, who are it's, basically what they're describing is, is, is what is as defined 
a conflict with our morality, practicing medicine in a system that we feel uh, is going against our conscience or our grain. So at the very beginning of the pandemic, that was a concern because it, it came upon us, I'll speak for us here in New York City, because we were the epicenter for a period of time and we definitely weren't prepared. And so just one of the things that are we going to have enough PPE? Is there going to be enough staff and you know, having to um, move patients away from the hospital to make our hospital became COVID-19 only? And things like that, all those things that had to be done in such a short time. And what doctors Dean and Talbot have come up with is that it's moral injury that actually contributes to the symptoms of burnout. And the other thing too that I'll just add before I become quiet is as psychiatrists, we try to be very careful to, um, to make a distinction uh, between burnout and something else uh, that, that, that is in our diagnostic nomenclature. So for instance, one of the co common chief complaints I would get in my practice would be a doctor calling me and say, hey, Dr. Myers, my name's Dr. Brown. I've been feeling kind of burned out. Oh, I don't know, the last six months or so, my job is really killing me. It's driving me nuts. But my wife is, she's worried about me. She thinks that this is more than burnout, that she thinks I'm depressed, um, you know, that I've withdrawn from her and the kids. I never want to do anything around the house. I'm not sleeping well. I've lost weight, you know, things like that. You know, I get a phone call like that. I realize that this is somebody that, that I've got to see quickly and get this sorted out. And if indeed the individual is clinically depressed, and that requires, you know, the biopsychosocial treatment that is indicated, you know, for depression. And that's a very different approach than somebody with straightforward burnout. So, so that's why, you know, at another level, the, my, my, my book is timely because it's come at a time. Um, I started writing it long before the pandemic started. Uh, but as you probably know, Jeff, from like, it, I, I, I end, um, you know, with the, with my attending a virtual funeral <clears throat> of a colleague of mine, a psychiatrist uh, who died of COVID and, um, and finish off the book, but more actually on a, a more of an upbeat note, because I do feel that way that we're making really big changes uh, in medicine. And what I'm finding is that there, there's so much attention being paid now to the health and well-being of our students, our physicians, their family members, all of the national associations have got have got all kinds of resources that are available. Your initiative, Crazy Socks for Dogs, is you know one of the you know other sort of major international um, things that have come out through all of this, and it's all it's all geared toward protecting really sort of a workforce of individuals who basically love being doctors when and if they can be allowed to do the work or permitted to do the work that they were, were trained to do. So, so that's why I see, and also the other thing I find too is that I find physicians, especially since the pandemic, talking differently. They, they're talking to me, in my mind, more humanistically. They are talking a little bit more about their vulnerabilities and their humanness through this, using emotional language much more and less of the medical jargon that we're, we, we start acquiring in medical school. And sometimes, as you know, Jeff, that can become hypertrophied and people 
two doctors talking to each other in jargon, and you have no idea what their feelings are uh, about what they're discussing. So I do, I do see, I do see light at the at at the end of the tunnel. Yes, I mean, well, like out of all bad, sometimes comes good. I mean, I think very similar here in Australia with colleges, all the colleges starting to have kind of wellness and wellness initiatives and. Um, you know, taking a significant interest in physician, you know, or their their craft groups, mental health particularly, um, and medical student health, which is which is fantastic. How does like what do you think is the percentage of burnout in the United States say at the moment in physicians? I mean, I quoted figures like fifty to sixty percent. Would that be reasonable? Yeah, so that's 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 kind of the sort of the baseline that everybody seems to talk about, and it varies from one specialty to another. But the group, well, there's two major groups um, that are continuing to do pivotal work in burnout. It's the Mayo Clinic group and the Stanford University group, and their more recent research is is describing burnout rates that are less. And you know, as you know, it takes a long time to get these studies done and everything, but but I think obviously that's a good sign. The other thing too um, that we're expecting through this pandemic is post-traumatic growth. Um, so that we're not gonna hear just about PTSD. And by the way, I have seen that in some of the patients that I've been asked to treat. I was kind of pulled out of clinical retirement, even though I'm not retired from my work, but I was pulled out of clinical retirement um, to uh, you know, to see some of our doctors um, at University Hospital Brooklyn, where I work, and <clears throat> what we're hoping for as this as this moves along, now that we have more and more people vaccinated and things like that, that the PTSD will move into post-traumatic growth, and basically that is defined as individuals changing uh, in a good way through things that have basically knocked them to their knees. Um, before the pandemic, I think that I was most um, more most a witness to post-traumatic growth in individuals who came my way or who I've met at uh, conferences who have suffered traumatic loss, and and I'm more specifically because I work in the field of suicidology by individuals who have lost somebody who you know is a family member somebody close to them. Um, and as they move along through their bereavement, as the months and years go by, they are of course changed forever. So these, these individuals themselves will say that not only they are a different person, but they use terms like, I'm, I'm wiser, I'm kinder, I'm certainly hum humbled by what has happened to me. Um, I, I, I salute gratitude, you know, things, things like this. Those are all things. And then some of them will say, and it's through this tragedy, I, I've, I've become a better doctor. So it's a, it's a painful loss and process, uh, but yet that's why there is quite a lot of research going on right now about post-traumatic growth. And uh, we're hoping, of course, too, that that will really make a, a big difference worldwide. So, oh, well, 
just to um, post dramatic growth was that was first coined term by Martin Seligman. Is that correct, or mm -hmm. one of the founders in that field? Um, and you know, here in this country in Australia, we we are concerned, although um, for listeners around the rest of the world, we've had a kind of in some states we've been fortunate in the sense that we've had little COVID. In the state I lived in, we we did have a significant second wave and surge. And there's there has been concern around post traumatic stress in the doctors. Um, but how do we, you know, um, Seligman, to my understanding, looked at people that returned from service from overseas and saw some that develop post traumatic stress, but others that develop post traumatic growth. How do we how do we not encourage, but how do we develop it, this growth in someone? Um, yes. Yeah. Well, well, first of all, yes, I want to say something about that, because, see, that touches on then the necessity also of getting evidence based care or state of the art care, things like that. And when we're looking at at you know, what people have experienced through the pandemic, whether it's an anxiety disorder, uh, you know, worry with, say, trouble sleeping, whether they've developed a depression. And some people, of course, with pre-existing conditions who have been ill in the past, worry that this could be the trigger of a relapse, recurrence, or something like that. But yet, not always. So, and I've I've heard people say that they said, you know, I thought because of my past, my history, you know, I was really, really worried. But actually, and I've been feeling like pretty okay and pretty stable through all of this. And see, that also says something probably about the changes that they've made in their life. And so, so I, I think we can look at this in two ways to get the care that isn't for people who are quite symptomatic. Like I'll just <clears throat> give an example of a disguised uh, case of a, of, a, of a doctor I'm, I'm seeing with PTSD. Um, now I'm, I'm managing his medication, um, uh, but he's also seeing a psychologist and this is very, very helpful for the imagery um, and techniques that she's able to offer him uh, when he's worried about intrusive thoughts that are coming in that are affecting his sleep. He's doing a lot of meditation, visualization, <clears throat> and also his whole lifestyle is really somewhat holistic now, just in terms of setting limits, erecting boundaries between his work and his personal and family life, just taking time for himself, he's he's really changing in a in a in a really good way, and these are all of the things that will come together, which I think will put him on a nice path of post traumatic growth. Um, and so, and and so when we see that, and these are the same individuals though who will speak openly about what they've experienced. And by the way, Jeff, that's another thing, um, because you're an example of this yourself. We're seeing more and more doctors who, who are speaking openly about what they've experienced. And for a long time, I have been following these individuals because I've been so grateful to them. And I refer to them as individuals who are stigma busters, for instance. And when they tell their story or write their story or they're interviewed about their story, that's a real gift to all of us in medicine. Um, and I've seen this illustrated. I've had patients come to me 
who have been been ambivalent about their symptoms or avoiding coming for help for weeks and months. And then they read an article about a physician uh, who was diagnosed with alcoholism or perhaps depression or both, got some treatment, is now speaking out, how much better the individual is feeling. And they read a story like that. First of all, <clears throat> they see that they're not alone. And secondly, they realize that help is available and that help works. And so that's why these, these first person accounts are so very, very important. And I'm, I'm so you know, pleased that there are more and more of those, but it's just, it, it's all part of this normalization that we physicians are human too. And so what so many have told me is that, you know, because people thought, well, your patients, what are they going to think? Well, you know, obviously there are exceptions to this, but I've heard so many people say, look, at my patients have been actually in many ways much more accepting and understanding than my colleagues. Now, you know, that's not to, to criticize colleagues because, as you know, most of our colleagues are very supportive. But sometimes they're not. And when they're not, obviously, as a psychiatrist, I try to understand that I think it's got to do with the fact that it's scary, that they're afraid that this, you know, it's kind of in your face too much or something like that, instead of just being kind and just that the person has, you know, speaking openly. Um, and so I think, I think that's, I think that's going to take some time. As you know, the, the medicine for a long time has been kind of an elitist uh, club. And I think, I think during that era, which is, which is over, there's residue out there, but it's over. I think during that era, it was sort of felt that you, you don't talk and stuff like that. You're kind of letting out secrets about the club. And that's going to scare people. They're not going to want to come to us. They're going to think that we're not good doctors or we're not going to be able to help them or something like that. Well, we've certainly proved that one wrong. And so that's why a lot of that is largely, it's outdated, of course, and it's, it's, it's a myth. Let me pause at that point. I can, like I, you know, I can resonate exactly with what you just said. I... I was kind of afraid. I mean, here we have a big organisation called Beyond Blue that started on people telling stories and destigmatizing mental health and normalising the conversation. That gets a lot of people to seek help. And someone said to me that I won't realise the number of doctors or other people I help by speaking. And whereas a cardiologist, which is my day job, I get I see instantly in front of me the kind of so you know when we save someone's life but uh, certainly more people come uh, colleagues of mine dr helen schultz you know who yes people come and um see her because we have people have spoken out and like gosh gee if he can he or she can get sick um, yes. and can get better we'll get better the same resonation in the patients i was worried about what patients would say virtually no patient left me they all, uh, in fact, were more, are more engaging with me and I'm sure other physicians you treat because 
We have our own vulnerability. And they've said, well, that doctor's been sick. He knows what it's like or she knows what it's like. On the other side, hmm, they know what it's like to be a patient. Um, mm-hmm. So we're quite happy with him. Less so yeah. with colleagues. I mean, somewhat sadly, I lost, you know, and it's probably, you know, the people, <laughs> some doctors, you know, kind of ignore me and I'm not quite sure why it was. Um, so all of that resonates so completely. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, you're saying what I kind of know from first-hand experience is just kind of good. The more people we do get to speak out, the better it will be. I think for mm-hmm. our, our, our doctors and doctor patients. I mean, yes. What do you think? One of the things. I mean, um, might be a slight diversion, but doctors need to become a patient you know they've most of the time they treat they're the person in control they're the person that um knows what's going on how do you how does a doctor or medical student sort of let go of that for want of a better term become a patient because that's the important thing you've got to put your treatment in the hands of your physician um yes psychologist and all the other things that you're doing um to get better um, Jeff, I want to, yeah, that, thank you. I'm going to make two, two comments about that. The first I want to make is that I have this uh, wonderful uh, job. I'm on our medical student admissions committee for our medical school. And because I'm the only clinical psychiatrist, I'm asked to evaluate all of the applicants who have openly disclosed in their personal statement that they've been diagnosed with and treated with something in the past. It could have been in their childhood. It could have been when they were teenagers or perhaps when they were in college, you know, that sort of thing. Anxiety, PTSD, um, sometimes trouble with alcohol and other street drugs, uh, an eating disorder, um, social phobias, things like that. But they just put it right out there. And so because we want to make sure that they get a good, you know, a fair assessment. So I really enjoy doing that. Uh, I love talking to these young individuals. Uh, But of course, what I'm always interested in is their decision to disclose this, because the vast majority of people with a a pre-existing condition like that do not disclose that, reveal that um, at the time they're applying to medical school. I mean, it's so competitive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the response that I get is almost always the same, that they got mixed um, advice from their mother, their father, their their advisors, their friends, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, they said, I just had to be honest because I'm a different person because of this. I know what it's like to be a patient. So there you are, Jeff, that first thing. I know what it's like to be a patient, to be vulnerable. And I also know what it's like to uh, receive care. And it's also given me an opportunity to evaluate doctors because some of them will say, you know, most of the time I've had good treatment. And that's why I'm applying to medical school, because those doctors have been my role models. But there was one or two where I didn't get good treatment. And that's another reason why I want to apply to medical school, because I hope to make a difference. Because there's things I think that doctors need to do that will make their patients feel more accepted, more welcome, cared for, et cetera, et cetera. So that's that's the that's the one thing right there because as you can tell those individuals are chipping away at stigma too. That's the first thing. The second thing is, as you 
may or may not remember when I was in Australia a couple of years ago, I was so delighted when I was uh, in Sydney to be asked to be very specific in the uh, talk that I gave at the, in the evening presentation uh, to, to do two things. They wanted me to talk about how, how to become a patient, how to become a good patient and how to become a doctor who looks after other doctors. And so the patient one was very interesting because we kind of touched on that in this talk so far today that it isn't easy. It isn't easy for anybody to become a patient. So, but yet we have to admit though, just our humanness and that, and but to just accept that at the time we're vulnerable. But when they're, but we're, when we're in the hands of a good doctor or doctors, depending on you know, what the illness is, that makes it just, that, that um, calms us. So that, that there's a salve there. It, it's, it's like, you know, it's, you, you feel cared for, uh, you feel hope again, or you, you're getting feedback, you're, you know, you're getting information as to what this is, what the, either the diagnosis is or the differential diagnosis is or what the treatment plan is going to be. And especially when the care is collaborative, where we have a voice ourselves as patients, um, that helps too, that we're kind of in this together. And so those are the kinds of things that makes it easier for us to be a patient. I, I, I think I am a little bit different in that I never had, I've never had difficulty being a patient through my, since I became a physician, you know, I, when I was a boy, I was taken to the doctor by my parents and I went to doctors if I needed to when I was in college. And it's, but so when I got my MD, it didn't mean, well, now I have my MD, I can just treat myself. I never thought that, but yet I've looked after scores and scores of doctors who treat themselves. So I think when we get into the habit of actually realizing, yes, we're right now we're a patient who happens to be a doctor and find ourselves a good primary care physician, that helps. And so again, when I was in Sydney, then I went into that too. And, and I, I had kind of a bit of a checklist of here's what you can do to make your doctor patients feel more comfortable with you, et cetera, et cetera. So when you've got a good, a good thing going there, you've got a doctor who's accepting being a patient and you've got a doctor who's accepting being their doctor. You know, I'd like to believe that that's the basic ingredient of hopefully a win-win situation. And so that's, the, and, and also we, of course, address the anxiety of all of that as well. But, you know, so, Jeff, you're a cardiologist. I have a very quick disguised example of a cardiologist who came to see me. I always had a hospital-based office and I had a private office about 15 minutes away from the hospital. But he insisted he wanted to see me at the hospital. He was on the same, uh, at the same hospital as me. Um, and because I wanted to give him some privacy, I thought, come to my private lab. He said, no, no, I'm so busy. I'll just see you here in the hospital. So he came, white coat on, stethoscope around his neck, sat, sat opposite me and started telling me what his concerns were. And after about seven or eight minutes of going on like that, he stopped and he said, Dr. Myers, do you mind if I listen to your heart? <laughs> and I started to laugh as I'm doing now. And he started to laugh. <laughs> and we both just sat there for a minute. He said, yeah, listening to your heart would be a lot easier for me 
than having to talk about why I'm here. This is very hard to do. 15 minutes ago, I was looking after patients and now I'm the patient. Mm. See, he, he was able to articulate that and that was a very powerful moment. I knew at that, I knew at that point, seven or eight minutes into that visit with him, that this was going to go well. I liked him for that. And I, you know, I'm so glad that he was you know, able, first of all, to speak about that, that he also had a little bit of a sense of humor. And he was basically just pointing out that this is not going to be an easy journey at first anyway. So anyway, I thought you might like that little story, Jeff. It's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I can still remember, you know, the first time I sat in the GP's, your local GP's rooms, which would be your family physician in the United States, and, um, uh-huh. and oh, it's just like I was, well, I was pretty unwell at that stage and, like, I was just, um, you know, w- waiting um just uh, kind of trying to, I mean, I was scared about seeing the doctor, but I actually burst into tears when I walked in because I knew then that my journey would start to recovery. I kind of delayed it a bit longer. Probably the stigma at the time that I saw help was a bit more than it is now. So yes. I can resonate with that. Um, just, with, I kind of just want to touch back on burnout and then go, you know, and I as you have said, you know, I've had a uh, openly talked about my illness. I was concerned that I was going to have problems during this pandemic here. And although we haven't had as bad an issue in this country, um, I still actually came through pretty well. I did, however, develop more symptoms of what you would call burnout because of the workload and the added stress and, you know, demands that we have. But I'm okay. How does how does a doctor or how does a doctor as a patient who may do the burnout survey work out well or you know maybe I'm not just burnt out and I need a few weeks off holiday I've actually got something that requires some treatment or how does a colleague note that in their someone that that's in their workforce is there yes. some way to do it or yeah. Well, as you know, the, the, the symptoms that we look for in burnout are, first of all, there is that exhaustion. It's both emotional and physical exhaustion. But, you know, again, doctors, can, I find that my doctor patients were able to differentiate. They said, this is different. I know physical exhaustion when I work hard as a doctor. I'm tired, but it's a good tired. This is not a good tired. I'm exhausted because I, I can't stand the place where I work. I don't like the attitude of management. We're, we're treated like workhorses. We're reimbursed very poorly. Um, uh, you know, the, you know there's, there's, I think there's bullying going on. There's discrimination. Women aren't treated well. Our uh, minority physicians, I don't think they're treated very well either. There's microaggressions or you know, all these kinds of things that are all toxic. And that's the other word that's thrown around, a toxic work environment that just isn't healthy or safe for people to be working in. Okay, so that's that one period. The other thing is that then when they describe feeling kind of numb or detached, they say, I hate this about myself. I went into medicine because I care. I care about people. I used to be compassionate. Now, 
it's just awful the way I feel, that sort of thing. I can't wait for my patient to get out of the office or things like that. See, this is somebody being very, very honest with what they're dealing with. So in a situation like that, when and if they can afford it, I think a leave of absence, you know, can be a wonderful thing. If it's, it could be, it could be as short as a month, but that will make a big difference. If it can be two or three months, that would be even better. And, you know, whether or not there's somebody to step into their position, there may not be, but at times I've had to be the bad guy. I've had to be the one to say, look, I have to put this individual in medical leave. It's not safe for her or him to be working right now. It's certainly not good for their health and they're at risk of error. And as you know, that's also one of the hallmarks of burnout is that the studies have been that there, there, are, there are more errors um, committed by burned out physicians, that type of thing. So again, we get back to the systemic factors that, you know, first of all, it's, it's one of the, again, the hallmarks of burnout is when the individual does not have agency. That's the psychological term agency, which is the same at one level as autonomy or capacity for decision-making or being, you know, having a say in their, in their work life. It, you know, it, when you work for a, a system, I mean, it can't be a hundred percent, but it certainly needs to be up there or whatever that you feel that you have a voice, uh, you're represented well, people listen. <laughs> It's, it's generally, when I've just heard it from so many doctors who are working in a setting where there's an ethos of respect and where they're valued. And I don't mean that in, a, in an elitist way. They, 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 they like it there. They'll work hard and they'll say, yeah, I, but I'm, I'm tired, but it's not like it was in that other setting where I just felt used and abused, et cetera, et cetera. So obviously those are the things that we have to get away. And this is then when we get into the systemic factors, our stakeholders, and and I'm, I, I know that obviously in your country as well, Jeff, and I was in Canada for many years before here in the United States. But as you mentioned, the national associations are, are trying to work with you know, people in charge. And in fact, one, I'll say one final thing and then stop again. Um, we lost um, uh, a well-known emergency physician to suicide, uh, <clears throat> Dr. Lorna Breen. And I know that you're familiar with that name because her, her death has really become global. She had COVID-19, thought she was recovered, returned to work, but wasn't well, crashed into a depression. She never had any psychiatric issues before, had treatment, but shortly after being discharged from the hospital, ended her life. Her sister, Jennifer Feist, and brother-in-law, Corey Feist, I've come to know these two fine individuals quite well. They are doing work with Congress here in the United States, um, having to do, again, with protecting our healthcare professionals, not just physicians, but the whole healthcare team, that they be recognized and supported with better, oh, it could range all the way from on-site daycare to pension plans to um, number of people trained in the workforce, um, getting you know days off, um, 
uh, there's all those sort of hygiene things, but the other have to, has to do with funding for the further study of stigma to keep fighting that, to reducing it so that they will not be afraid to go for care. And then a corollary of that is that they will then not be penalized by their nursing or medical licensing boards when they go to renew, well, first of all, either when they go to take out a license or go to renew it, if they're going to be asked any questions about their health, what we've concluded is that the only thing that's allowable or acceptable is a question that has to do with your current health and functioning. So it would be, are you currently suffering from any illness of any sort that could affect your ability to practice safe and competent medicine? And if so, please explain. All these other outdated questions about have you ever had depression, have you ever missed time away from work in the past, all, the, all that stuff has to be eliminated. Because when, when or if we don't do that, then physicians and nurses and others will not go for help and they'll just get sicker and sicker and they burn out and they, they quit uh, in horror of horrors. Uh, as you know, some take their lives and this just is unconscionable. It just cannot be that way. So that's why this, this, this is a very multi-pronged matter that involves a lot of individuals uh, and organizations in various groups. I was like, oh, well, I'm glad you touched on Dr. Warburn because I was going to ask you about her and exactly what you've just spoken about. Um, we saw the story here in Australia and as did many people around the world did. Um, and then we've seen the kind of development of what her family started and also the advocacy with Congress. Really, um, it would be the same here. I'm sure it's the same in many countries where doctors and other healthcare professionals are really concerned about disclosing their mental health because of the licensing boards or, or you know, the medical boards or whatever it's called in that country, but also the hospital in which you work at. Um, uh, and so really that question, are you currently fit to practice? Essentially the kind, you know, to cut it yes. short essentially what you need to do. Um, right. yeah. And I, you know, it's kind of, um, we've had various yes, we'll issues here. Uh, yeah, and, and I, I think, I, Jeff, I think why Dr. Breen's story has been just so painful was what her sister and brother-in-law remember that she was churning about the last two or three days before she ended her life. They she just kept going over and over again that she was so worried about losing her job because she had been off work now for several weeks as she was receiving treatment. And she had left this very busy, busy emergency room with the volume of patients, which were just overwhelming. She was the director of the unit, so she was trying to, but she already felt guilty having to take a few days off when she was first diagnosed with the actual acute you know, symptoms of COVID-19 viral inflammation. And so she ruminated about, and, and then this fear, I'll lose my job, I'll lose my medical license, and then, and then what will I have? You know, this sort of thing. And, and, and so that really, they're both attorneys, they're both lawyers, and 
when when they learned of this because they they weren't aware of these things and they looked at some of these applications for medical license they just said this this is not right you know things have to change so that's why i mean their voices and the energy that they have um i mean they're, they're doing such important work and i'm i'm so grateful to the two of them and and uh you know their website is just amazing and etc etc because out of the ashes of tragedy um comes um phenomenal change oh, great advocacy i mean it's i'm sure i just i know in the countries that we deal with like new zealand england your country mm-hmm. it's a similar sort of issue with regard to physicians you touched on a word guilt um pre this and i'll i'll talk for listeners that may be overseas in Australia now, like we, we had very strict rules about people turning up to work with any symptoms of an upper respiratory tract infection or any resp- symptoms that are consistent with COVID. We had the kind of uh, luxury in this country that the test was f- is free at initial and um, that people weren't charged and was pretty much ready access to prevent the spread and kind of contact tracing. So what happened in this country was that um, our flu rates dropped dramatically to less than like by about 99% and upper respiratory tract infections because people were not turning up to work with coughs, colds, you know, those sort of things. Mm-hmm. Doctors and, you know, and nurses and other healthcare professionals will kind of soldier on, they'll turn up, you know, being sick. And that culture, in a sense, has been broken in the last 12 months, but there's a particular guilt about a doctor going, well, look, I can't take time off to get my depression fixed up. I can only have a couple of days off to do it, and then I need to get back to work. There's this guilt of letting their team down. How do you address that with the patient, and how do you address that with the team that may be around them, say, in your role in the hospital? Because that's, that's a big barrier to doctors continuing getting help and getting maybe taking the time off that they need. Right. One of the things that I used to do, and this is, you know, pre-COVID when I was in practice, Jeff, and I had um, so at any one time, it wasn't unusual for me to have up to 20, 15 to 20 physicians on medical leave at any one time, you know, they're just, you know, at various stages of getting better and returning to work part-time, et cetera, et cetera. But, so when I would lecture, I'd always say, look, when one of your own is away on medical leave, whether it's in a hospital or time to attend a day program, or if they're in a treatment center for alcohol or drugs or whatever, please don't forget about them. Please send them a note. Uh, this was even before email, or if you've got email, send them an email. They may not be up for a visit, but you could ask. And when and if they are, please go visit them because they've, they've so quickly feel out of the loop. Um, I've had physician patients, when I've called them doctors, they say, don't call me doctor, call me mister. I don't feel like a doctor anymore. See what I mean? What that does to a person's professional self-regard. And so therefore, this is where we all must come together you know, as our brothers and sisters um, in, in medicine to, you know, to make sure that, and then, and then, it's, and then when they come back, you should have welcomed them. Um, 
because what I used to hear so often, it's changed a lot now, but too often I'd hear, you know, I went back to work this week and I said, that's why I'm seeing you today because I want to know how that's gone. And, you know, the nurses were really wonderful. You know, they just welcomed me. They gave me a hug. I found that my doctor colleagues are just, you know, they, they kind of nodded and said hello or something like that. But, you know, that's changed a lot now. I, you know, I, because we need to be, we need to be more effusive. We need to be warmer. You know, we need to say, you know, we've missed you. And also not with a sense of, I'm glad you're back because now we can put you on call again immediately. You know, that's, you know, that's punitive. You know, you've got to make up for the weeks that you lost or something. You can't do that. I mean, it's, it's, it's not right. It's wrong. It can make the person ill again. We, we're, we're way beyond that. I like to believe, but yet you still, you still anecdotes physicians who have felt that you know they're really just letting everyone down and they already feel it enough so that's why you picked up in the word guilt you know we're, we're we tend to be a little bit guilt prone it's probably one of the one of the traits that gets us into medicine you know because we're we've got to be responsible that sort of thing but so I used to do a lot of that and the families, you know, would, would help us. The other thing too, that I would say, look, I, I know you want to be back, but I'm your doctor. You've got so much on your plate right now. I don't want to send you back prematurely because there's two things that scare me. One is that you'll fall ill again and start going backwards. And I don't want that to happen to you. And the second thing is, so I don't want you to make an error. You don't need that. You know, you've got enough worries. Yeah, very like I kind of I pause because I kind of can, can feel the lived experience. Like um, I think it is changing a little bit. And look, I only kind of sniggered half a little when you said, when they said, well, glad you're back because you can go on call next week is kind of something that was said to me after it came back. Um, kind of, you know, you know, we can, we've been coping without you. We've run down, but good to see you back. Um, um, and Jeff, I know we only have a minute or two left. We've come full circle because that's the other reason why I wrote this book. Um, and by the way, even though it's called, you know, Becoming a Doctor's Doctor, a memoir, it's not just for doctors. Um, it's also for the general public. I've had a lot of feedback from, from individuals who have read it and they thought, oh, my gosh, not only did I learn, you know, so much about doctors, you know, et cetera, et cetera, including my own doctor, that sort of thing. But I just learned a lot just about human beings and about people. Um, but, but what I wanted doctors to take out of this is to actually read and see, you know, what it's been like for physicians when they're symptomatic, when they're ill. And I think having, having a bird's eye view into that, um, you know, by, a, by the physician reader, I think enhances their empathy for a colleague who is who is under the weather at the moment. And um, they just get a better sense of what that individual is struggling with and then how they get well. And next thing you know, they're back and they're fine again, that kind of thing. But so I think when doctors understand that, understand our illnesses better in psychiatry, it'll give them just you know a more empathic sense um, of, of it in a, in a, in a colleague who is, is going through a rough patch right now. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think um, 
I totally agree. Um, yeah, we are coming closer to the end. There's one thing I did like. You, you did do your supervisory. Well, actually, maybe we should just finish. Do you think? Um, I mean, this is we could chat for hours about this. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, but, I do. Um, you know, like uh, even in the time I've been advocating, um, I've seen a significant change and, you know, we've got to see the positives, kind of the cup half full kind of philosophy. Oh, yes. think, yep. um, there is a really strong cup half full. One of the things that uh, is that is a, we are putting significant funding in Australia into mental health, but how do we get all the I mean how do you get all the colleges and all the organizations saying your country is an example because it'd be and then we can maybe translate that to here to work together so that it's synergistic so we're not you know repeating the same programs we're not kind of you know wasting you know resources so that people can get help and we can kind of preempt people getting ill I mean if you understand what I'm trying to say I mean there's well, a lot of money and a lot funding a lot of work and it's all good but how do we yes. get work together and like trying to get 10 medical colleges in this country to work together i'm sure is the same as getting 10 medical colleges and you well, know bond together Jeff, let me, yeah let me make a couple of comments i think we have actually been doing that but it is slow uh, like i've been active in the international conferences on physician health for about 30 years they were initially started just by the american medical association and then the Canadian Medical Association joined. They were always held every two years. And then probably about 20 years ago, the British Medical Association joined. And so now we have our, our virtual International Conference on Physician Health coming up uh, in April. It's in London. And it was postponed. It was to be an in-person meeting last year in 2020, but it had to be put on. It was going to be in September, wasn't it? I must put it on that. Yes, that's the virtual, right. The virtual yeah. flight to London. Yes. Yes, so it's a virtual meeting now. But see, that's an example, though, of that. Now, see, this is now through social media and through our technology that people can learn and come together globally. We've always had a global presence at those international meetings, but I've noticed the ones I've been attending the last 10 to 15 years, there are more and more representatives from other countries. It depends on where it's held because sometimes we alternate between Canada, the United States, and uh, Britain. And so, you know, so there'll be, you know, more individuals coming from contiguous countries. But there is a lot of what I would call global learning that occurs, you know, at those meetings. And that's, that's the one thing. And, I, you know, you were talking about Makesh earlier, and I was wondering through the World Medical Association, through the World Psychiatric Association, whether or not these are also matters that they're taking up into and that that will, you know, will help in some ways um, so that we're not always inventing the, the wheel. Because I know that I've learned an enormous amount attending papers, uh, reading articles by my colleagues and other parts of the world that I can adapt to my work here. And so there will be always a certain amount of that, that, you know, is, is going on, but when it comes, when it comes right down to the basics, we have to make sure though that we do have services available because you continue to hear that despite all what we know, um, it's still hard sometimes for ailing physicians to find someone to look after them. 
whether it's a primary care physician or somebody in the mental health field. And sometimes, see, that gets into, into things like insurance and, or, or paying out of pocket or something. And that's too big an issue to go, you know, to go into in this podcast. But I do feel that there is, there is a fair amount of kind of sort of sharing of, of our scientific knowledge. And I'm encouraged by that. That um, that issue about access to care would be not only for doctors and medical students, health professionals, but kind of all people in this country that um, you know it takes time to get, to get the help and access the care, and then there's the cost. I mean, fortunately, we we have a we have a significant amount covered by our, our own health system, but still there is some out of pocket for some things and. It's the resources it's, uh, in Australia. It's called the missing middle. So it's kind of mm-hmm. that kind of, you know, at a crisis end, you're probably able to get help. But it kind of when you need some help, it's that time to get there, and it affects every single person. Yes, and uh, yeah. it's identified. Um, See, I, my, I myself have always looked to the young because even when I was the doctor's doctor in Vancouver, British Columbia, in Canada. I was always looking around for junior colleagues, though, that could help me with, you know, with the patients. I couldn't accommodate, you know, with because I always practice from the belief that, look, at I have to watch my own health or I'm not going to be able to help my, my brothers and sisters in medicine. So I had to put limits on that. And that's why whenever I, I saw, you know, a junior colleague, I said, look, at, are you open to, you know, some referrals of um, young physicians or their family members or something like that? And usually they were. He said, just, just don't overload me. And I said, I'll, I'll do my best. I, I got to protect you too. Yeah. Massive thanks to both Dr. Jeff Tugut and Professor Michael Myers for that brilliant chat. They covered so many facets of doctor's mental health and why it's so important to keep it front of mind um, and a good reminder to look after yourselves and your colleagues. Um, another quick reminder um, about the virtual Crazy Socks for Docs Day event uh, that I mentioned at the start of this episode. Go to the CCIM Facebook page, follow the links to the Zoom event to register. That virtual event is, of course, taking place on 4 June, Crazy Socks for Docs Day, so get in quick. Also, mark your diaries and get your presenter submissions in for CCIM 2021. For more info, check the CCIM Facebook or homepage, and remember that presenter submissions do close on May 31. Can't wait to see you all there in November at CCIM 2021. In the meantime, though, thank you for listening. The interview you just heard was, of course, recorded by Dr. Jeff Tugood with post-production by Embrace Creative. The CCIM podcast will be back soon with more interviews, so stay tuned.